Thank you for downloading the Best of Ridi Tabi podcast. Following many requests, we are making the week that wasn't with Nick Rabinovitz, Talking Sex and the Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, a separate podcast. If you are downloading these podcasts automatically, you will have to resubscribe to the new podcasts should you wish to continue receiving them. You can do this right now. The week that wasn't, Talking Sex and the Naked Scientist will not be published under the Best of Ridi Tabi from the beginning of July. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Find the Bill of Rights on leadersa.co.za. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk, The Naked Scientist. Chris Smith back with us uh, this week and we've just uh, opened our lines taking your science questions on any subject in the world. Join us as we uh, strip down science to its bare essentials. It's your opportunity to satisfy your curiosity about the world we live in and find out more about the weird and wonderful laws of nature and the intricacies of the human body. Speaking of the human body, Mr. Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, good morning. Good morning, Roger. How are you? I'm, I'm fantastic, man. I always enjoy standing in for Reedy, and even better on a Friday when I get a chat with you. Now, there, there are a couple of questions on the SMS line which we didn't get to last week. I see some of them are repeats, but uh, shall I go ahead uh, with one or two of those first? Fire away. Uh, there we go. Uh, Paulina, six years old, wanted to know last week. Please ask Chris why the hottest part of a flame is blue, which is the same color as something cold like the sea lovely yes hello paulina and i hope that you've been able to wait for a week for your answer sorry it's taken us a little while um in fact the hottest part of a flame is the top of the flame Ah. and you can demonstrate this yourself uh quite elegantly in two ways because flames are actually hollow they look like a solid a solid thing but a a flame is just a chemical reaction and it's a chemical reaction occurring between the vapor of a hot fuel and the oxygen in the air, which means the burning bit is only the bit around the edge of the flame. Now, if you take a piece of very thin wire, or a paper clip, for example, that you've unfolded, and you pass it into a flame, if you pass it through the base of a flame, or the middle of the flame, you'll see that the paper clip glows red, just the margins where it touches the orange bits at the edge of the flame. In other words, the bit in the middle does not glow at all, because it's not hot in there. Mm. And it feels slightly counterintuitive, because you'd think the middle would be the hottest bit. If you go to the very tip of the flame, though, you'll see that at that point, that's where the paperclip glows the brightest, right on the point. And if you ask someone who does oxyacetylene torch metal cutting or welding, they'll they'll tell you they're aiming to put that tip of the flame just uh, ad- ad- adjacent to the thing they're trying to cut into or weld, because that's where all the heat is. So it's not actually to do with colour. The colour in a flame from, say, a piece of wood burning, the reason it's yellow, there are two reasons for that. One, the wood's got some sodium and contaminants from the environment in it, and sodium, when you heat it, goes orange. Mm. But the, the greatest reason why the flame is a yellowy colour is because when you burn the fuel, the fuel doesn't burn completely, and you get what's called incomplete combustion, and there are carbon particles still in there. And the carbon particles glow a reddy orange colour when they get hot. And so it's actually the flame heating up its own carbon particles, and that's what gives out the orange colour. Right, Chris Smith available to you all the way to 10 o'clock this morning. Your science-related questions, uh, 011-883-0702, Johannesburg, uh, of course, Cape Town, 021-446-0567. Let's go to AJ in Santon. AJ, good morning. 
Morning, Udo. How are you? Very well, man. What's on your mind, AJ? Uh, I want to find out what is the highest that they can build a building before the thing will start falling onto itself. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like a Tower of Babel yeah. type question, doesn't it? Um, the answer is that it depends when on history you look, because if you'd asked that question a hundred years ago, people would have said, well, about the height of um, some of the first buildings that are, were said to be really tall in big cities like London and New York. If you were now asked the same question today, you'll find an answer which is double that. So it's all down to clever engineering and local geology, because if the foundations can be made strong and you can engineer them to take loads because the problems a big building has to cope with isn't just making sure it stays upright it's the fact that you've got a very big surface area being presented to the wind mm. and this means the building has got to be able to either deflect that wind around itself so it doesn't get moved too much or absorb the movement and the continual swaying of the building won't fatigue the material because one of the big problems that um, limits our ability to build things is the actual physics and the behaviour of the materials, the material science, if you like, of the things we're trying to work with. And if we can make better building blocks that have better structural properties, then this will vastly and grossly extend what we're able to do with them. So scientists are always looking for new materials that have much better fatigability. They, uh, in other words, when you subject them to stress repeatedly, they don't suddenly break. And also materials that have a good toss-up between their stiffness or rigidity so the building doesn't flop around like a, a piece of rubber going up in the air, but at the same time can absorb impacts, energies and ground movements uh, and not resonate in such a way that it will then break itself to pieces. So this is all down to very clever design, very clever engineering and the advance of materials science. So if you ask the question in probably another hundred years, you'll get a very different answer than you'll get today. I can't give you a, a precise number for the very simple reason that we don't know what we're going to be capable mm. of and what materials we're going to have to play with and what clever brains are going to be behind this in the future. Fascinating question. AJ, I hope Thank you're not you. fighting with your neighbours about an alteration, huh? No, no. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> not Friday yet, adventure. anyway. Here we go. <laughs> Spoo in Centurion, good morning. Good morning, Lloyd. Lekkerman, what's on your mind, Spoo? Yes, I'm good. Uh, my voice is a bit uh, low of the flu. Uh, the question is, uh, why is it possible uh, for um, you know pharmaceutical company to give a drug that kills the HIV? Because I understand that there's a drug called Combivol that you can take within 72 hours if you suspect a system and can kill the virus. So I just want to get the scientific explanation of that. Great question. Yes, hello, Spoo. Um, so what you're basically asking is, if you're exposed to HIV, is there a drug that you've allegedly heard of which could prevent you from picking up the infection? And the answer is, this is called post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP. And it's used very frequently. What scientists have found is if you give people a large dose of antiretroviral therapy from within 24 to 48 hours maximum of the risky exposure, whether that's from a needle stick injury or a splash injury from infected body fluids or having sexual intercourse with somebody. If you are given those drugs within that time window and then you take them for a month afterwards, it can prevent infection and it does so very successfully in the vast majority of cases. And the reason for this is that when a person is first infected with HIV, the virus has to get into a target cell at the point 
point of contact, then it has to replicate and make lots of new viruses and they then have to get into new cells. So the virus is most vulnerable when it's in the initial phases of the infection. Once it has got in and started replicating and making millions of new virus particles, they will infect millions of new cells and they will then start hiding inside the genetic material of the cells and once that happens you'll never get rid of the virus but if you intervene in the very early stages of the life cycle before it's begun to replicate and spread to new cells you can stop it replicating you can cut down the infectious load to the point where it's ca incapable of maintaining a long-term infection in the person and and this this approach called PEP does work very well and we use it all the time from medicine to sport Dave in four ways good morning hi Hello. Um, my question is, the clay courts, like at Roland Garros, uh, as an example, I'm puzzling over how they actually put the line down. Because you can't paint lines onto, onto the sand, because it would just rub off instantly. Mm. The lines are always at the same level as, as the sand, as the as the surface of the court, so I have no idea how they put those lines down that they don't disappear when when you know the the, the yeah, shoes yeah. of the players etc run over them. I've I've asked that question myself many times. Is is that a little <laughs> a little inlay on the on the clay court itself? Well, well I, don't I, know. I, I don't That's know. I don't know the answer to this. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to this. I think we need someone who is uh, a court linesman to help us out. Please, help me out. <laughs> put me out of my misery, and I will tweet this as well, as if we can find somebody who Fantastic. will put uh, both you, me, you, and Dave out of his you, misery. You know what I'm going to do? We're going to take a breather now. If we can get hold of our tennis correspondent, Craig Gabriel, who, who gives us updates from all the Grand Slam tournaments, I'm <coughs> sure he'll have an answer for us. Chris Smith with us, the Naked Scientist, all the way until 10 o'clock. Uh, you... Get your questions to him. You'll have your answers on the other side of the break. Udo Carl's in for Ridi Klabi, who's away today and Monday, so I'm doing duty for her. The Naked Scientist doing duty on your behalf. And uh, we had a very interesting question before the break about how they get the lines on a clay court in uh, tennis. So we thought, since we're a little bit stumped on that one, we go to Craig Gabriel, our tennis correspondent, and he's uh, standing by in the UK. Craig, good morning. Welcome to the show, first of all. Thanks a lot. Geez, you're putting me on the spot now, aren't you? <laughs> put us out of our misery, please, if you could. How do those lines stay in the clay? How do they put those lines in there in the first place? They're, they're sort of a taping that's put on the, on the court. So, you know, you can put, you can put these uh, white lines or this, it's like a chalk that you would put on a grass court. Mm. And it, it's a very precise thing, certainly on a grass court, when they're doing it every morning. I watch them at Wimbledon. They have this rolling machine that, that uh, paints the line on. But on a clay court, because the, uh, the, the uh, surface is pretty loose, if you put the same sort of thing like chalk on there, mm. it's going to spread all over the place. And if it does rain, it's going to take a, a, an absolute mess on, on, on the court. Yeah. So what it is on a clay court is almost, as I said, like a taping that they put on there. Um, you know, so uh, that's why it doesn't shift around. That's why it stays exactly when they can, when the, uh, the, uh, the clay, uh, is, is moved around with, um, the footwork and the movement of the players. You just get a rolling brush and it, and it clears those lines. Uh, and, and you see the white lines, uh, strike up once more. So that's what it is. It's, it's not any sort of paint or chalk. Necessarily that's put on. That's on so a, a hard court, it is a paint that goes yep. on the cement. 
but that's how it works. Great, Chris has a question. How do they um how do they keep the tape down? How is it attached? Um, it's it's it, I guess like little nails, little pins that are put into the into the uh, surface uh, to to keep them there. That's that's why you often find also. Um, even though the, the clay will absorb some moisture when it's raining, obviously when it rains too heavily, it, 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 you, know, you can't really play on it because it becomes way too heavy to play on. But they may stop a bit earlier because those lines can, be get, can get slippery. It's not so much the clay that's the danger, it's the lines, and the players can slip on that. So you know, to avoid any injuries or any dangerous situations, that's why clay can also stop on clay, whereas people think, well, you know, that's clay. That should be able to absorb the water. Um, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, they do stop playing when it's raining because those lines can get a bit slippery, but they are also held down with these, like, pretty long nails and things like that that go into the surface. Craig, thank you so much for your time, man. No problems. Ciao, ciao, and we look forward to East Crossings from Wimbledon in a couple of days' time. Moving on to uh, Anne in Brixton, and good morning. Hello, good morning, Udo and Chris. Um, right, my billion-dollar question. <laughs> Why is it that if one listens to something poignant, for example, the first time um, I heard Susan Boyle or Peter Potts on Idols, one gets goosebumps? I mean, the temperature has not changed in the room, but one's skin starts crawling. Why? Yes, I remember meeting a lady who is a serial entrepreneur who invests in companies and startups, Anne, and she said to me that one of the signs to her that she needs to get her wallet out and get excited about a project is when someone pitches to her and they start to present their business plan and their background, she gets goose pimples mm. when it's a good goer, when there's an opportunity there. And I think the reason for this is if you look at the mechanism of goose pimples, why do we get them in the first place? Well, if you look at what's in a goose pimple, it's a little bump on the skin out of which emerges a hair. <coughs> and this is because in each goose pimple you have a little muscle that is attached to the hair shaft and that's called your piloerector muscle and you erect those muscles in response to stimulation from what's called your sympathetic nervous system. Your sympathetic nervous system is the part of the automatic nervous system that takes care of things that you don't have to worry about and it is activated by stressful situations, exciting situations or, sh or when you're being stressed because of thermal challenge. Now, if you were a very hairy animal and you I'm not, I'm were not. cold, <laughs> I'm not saying you are, but if you were, I, no, notice the use of the word where, if you were a, a very hairy animal, then if you were cold, you would activate your sympathetic nervous system because you're feeling stressed. This will put your metabolic rate up, but it would also activate those piloerector muscles and pull the hair up in the air. This would have the effect of trapping a layer of air against the skin, mm -hmm. and it would also, therefore, make you better insulated, so you would feel warmer. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if that animal came face to face with another animal that wanted to eat it, the animal can also activate its sympathetic nervous system because it now feels scared, and that stress makes the hair stand on end, and this is why some dogs, when they get excited, you'll see their hair literally stands on end, and the effect of that is to make the animal look much bigger in front of the, pr of the potential predator, and if it looks bigger, it looks scarier, and the predator might be put off, which is why some animals do that. Now, in us, we're not so hairy anymore, as you've just testified to. I'm not so hairy either, but we still have this sympathetic nervous system response, which is there to either protect us from getting too cold 
or to make us look scary when we get stressed about something or when we get excited about something. And when you hear that particular piece of music, it could be that you're getting very emotionally excited by it or that it is recreating or recreating certain frequencies which are activating alarm signals in you and it activates that automatic response, up goes the hair and you get goose pimples. Interesting. So we're all porcupines without the calls then pretty much, huh? <laughs> yeah, but thankfully not from a personality perspective, Fantastic. just in the physical out outgoing perspective. Let, let's go to Padarama in the Cape. Uh, KW, good morning. Hello, good morning, Ido, and to Chris. Good yes, morning. Sir. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me why is some people can't stand the cold and some people can't stand the heat in, in summer and in winter? Mm, I'm not terribly good in the heat, I have to admit, whereas I have friends who can go running and jogging and, and everything, and I'm not terribly good in the, in the cold either, but I put that down to the fact that I'm a bit scrawny, and if I was better insulated, I'd probably fare better. But there are certainly po people in the population who have genes that make them very vulnerable to the cold, because they have various um, re reactive blood vessel problems, like Raynaud's disease, for example, and um, people who live in the frozen north, Eskimos, Inuit populations, they're very well adapted. They have different physiology to compensate. So on the one hand, at extremes, it's because people are genetically equipped to cope with extremes of latitude, either very high latitude, very cold, or equatorial latitudes, lots of sun input and uh, lots of high temperature. Uh, on the other hand, there's going to be a degree of variation in a population because some people will be, by chance, equipped with better physiology or uh, a handful of genes that make them better able to sweat, um, better able to uh, conduct heat away, and better able to therefore tolerate temperature because they can control their own temperature better. So it's, it's all down really to the genetic hand that you have received from your parents and a bit of um, variation on top. There we go. Extra insulation explains my love of winter. Then John in Somerset West. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Um, tell me, have any studies been done about using <clears throat> lightning to generate electricity or to help make the process more efficient? Why can't we store it? Uh, can't you use it to sort of heat up a pool of water, which then requires less energy to turn into steam? You know, what studies have been done? Oh, hi, John. Um, I did actually write a little article about this, um, Why Can't Lightning Power a Town, about um, five years ago. And I actually put it on the Naked Scientist website. What I'll do at the end of the show, I will tweet a link to it. So if anyone wants to read this, you can see the calculations I did to follow it up. Um, so just follow at Naked Scientist, and I'll send out a tweet at just after the hour. Um, the bottom line is that each lightning bolt has got about a billion joules of energy in it. And with that, assuming you could cap capture all of it, you could run a 100-watt light bulb for about 120 days. Um, if you look at how much energy a city uses, it's huge compared with that. And, I mean, yes, 120,000 pieces of toast, which you could probably make as well, um, would sound like a lot, but it doesn't go very far in real terms. So not only have you got a, a problem that lightning does pack a big punch, but it's not enough given the huge and prodigious appetite we have for energy consumption. Number two, that lightning storms, with perhaps the exception of certain bits of Joburg, are relatively hard to predict where they're going to be. Also, collecting the lightning, how do you tap the lightning out of the sky and then bring it down safely, down some kind of collecting system, apart from being a very noisy neighbourhood, that would be dangerous. It would also be very difficult to store that much energy arriving all at once. And then, how do you redistribute it? And when you take into account all of those things, you've actually used so much energy solving the problem that actually it hasn't saved you anything. So, people have looked at it, and yes, it does look like a good option, but it 
doesn't seem like a viable option and it's also a very unsafe one. Benjamin Franklin, the um, Enlightenment electrician you could call him, was very lucky to escape with his life. He flew a kite into a thundercloud to prove it was electrical and had sparks streaming down the kite wire onto a key on the ground. And uh, how he didn't die doing the experiment, no one knows, but he very easily could have done because someone who tried to repeat it then did get fried. So it's a pretty dangerous thing to try and do. As always, left with more questions than answers. You know we could do this all day long. But Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, <laughs> thank sure you I very could. much. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thanks for tolerating us for the last 30 minutes Oh, it's at least. been great fun as ever. Great questions as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And just reminding you, of course, if you want more of the research into lightning and electricity, follow Chris on Twitter. The link will be there for you. Thank you so much for all the wonderful questions.